We'll turn with me once again to the book of Ecclesiastes. You'll find it about halfway through your Bible in the Old Testament section of wisdom literature. If you're new to us, my name is Dave Furman, and I serve as one of the elders here at Redeemer. And you're catching us in the second week of a six-week series in the book of Ecclesiastes. Well, as you turn to chapter 3, just a quick reminder to those of you who are members of the church, we have our next member meeting next Friday, so one week from today. Uh, If you've already been brought into membership at a previous meeting, please join us. There's a lot to be excited about, a lot to talk about as we gear up for another year uh, of ministry ahead. Well, last week we looked at Ecclesiastes 1 and 2. It was a bit grim, wasn't it? Everything is vain. Life is hopeless. It's all chasing after the wind. The preacher is on a search for the meaning of life. And he analyzes some things and he realizes that trying to find meaning in pleasure and achievement and wealth and power and pleasure is indeed a striving after the wind. It's trying to catch the wind, but... It's impossible to catch the wind, and so it's a pointless pursuit. I mentioned last week that I had asked my friend Siri, that nice lady who lives inside my iPhone, I had asked her the question, what is the meaning of life? And so that was fun, but I did it again this week, and then again, and again, and she gives all kinds of wonderful wisdom. Now, some of you may already know this, maybe you talk to Siri all the time, well, I don't, I haven't, and so this was fun for me. And so with my kids gathering around to hear all these exciting things, I asked Siri again, what is the meaning of life? I asked her several times. Let me tell you some of her responses. They were all different. One of her responses was this. The meaning of life, it's to try to be nice to people, to read a good book, and to avoid eating fat. That's good. That's good advice. Avoid fat. That's, that's legit. Another one was this. I can't answer that question now, but give me some time to write a very long play in which nothing happens. Well, here's another response, a bit cheeky again. This time she called me by my name. She said, Dave, I find it odd that you would ask this question of an inanimate object. But my favorite response was this. Siri, what is the meaning of life? Her answer Well, all evidence to date suggests that it is chocolate. (laughs) I like that. Chocolate. Now, that's a good thing. Not sure it's the meaning of life, though. So what is the meaning of life? We don't want to waste our lives, so what should our lives be about? Well, today we continue on this journey, and the preacher is going to show us that time... That time is a gift from the Lord, now and eternity. Well, I have three points. Let me just take them one at a time. So if you're taking notes, point number one, time flies by. So keep God's sovereignty in mind. Time moves by quickly. So keep God's sovereignty in mind. Our our passage opens up with a poem of pairs of opposites in verses 1 through 7. Ancient Near Eastern literature would often use opposites to emphasize something. 
The point here is not that we spent all of our time this morning analyzing what each of those couplets mean precisely. No, the point of the author is making by showing the extremes is that there's a time and a season for everything. The preacher uses polar opposites to show this. There's a time to be born and there's a time to die, which means there's a time for everything in between. There's a time to plant And there's a time to harvest what's planted and everything in between. God has appointed it all. There's nothing from beginning to end that's outside of God's control. The poem is not indicative of each of our lives, precisely. We're not all farmers who kill. You've not necessarily been personally involved in a war. But they are a general description of human life. We have 28 items in 14 pairs, multiples of seven. The number of completeness in the Bible is seven. And so perhaps the poem's structure, again here, contributes to its very meaning. The point is this. God is in control over every single minute of your life. All of it. So then verse 9, if God is in control over everything, if there's a time for everything, what gain has the worker from his toil? Well, first of all, God is the one who's given you work to do. In verse 10, he's ordained the season you're in. He's in control over it. Well, that's extremely comforting, isn't it? Whether you're in school or about to retire You have a job, you don't have a job, whether you're in a season of tears or rejoicing, God is in control. In verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. I love that verse. Now remember the context, it's not that everything is beautiful. This is a fallen world and we have our flesh and we have the devil who've ruined things. But the context here is time. Everything is beautiful in its time. There's an elegance to how life works. The seasons of life are to be treasured. God is in control over time. He has a purpose for every single season of our lives, even the hard things. You're in and out of the doctor's office and they can't give you a proper diagnosis. You're a preteen and you're anxious about your friendships in school. You're 16 or you're 17 years old and the exams, those, those tests and those assignments at school, you, you feel like you're being suffocated by them. You're a uni student and people keep asking you, what are you going to do with your life? And you, you still don't know. Or you're a young parent, maybe you're a young mother, you're there home with your kids every day and it just feels like another mundane day after another mundane day and that cycle never seems to end. Maybe you care for aging parents and that's stressful. Maybe you go to the shop for another work shift and you just don't know how you're going to get the energy to make it through. Some of you want to get married. Some of you are struggling with getting older. Friend, each of those seasons is ordained by God. All of them. The preacher is beginning to understand something here. Life is not all bad. It's beautiful. There's a time for different seasons. There's a poem that I have come back to on occasion over the past couple of years. I don't know who wrote it, but I think it gives us helpful perspective as we consider the seasons of life. 
The author, the poet, writes, It was spring, but it was summer I wanted, the warm days and the great outdoors. Now, obviously, this poet doesn't live in Dubai. If they did, I don't think they'd ever yearn for the warm days of summer. But I think you'll get the idea. Just hang with me as we work through this poem. It was summer, but it was autumn I wanted, the colorful leaves and the cool dry air. It was autumn, but it was winter I wanted, the beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted, the warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, and it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted, to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle age I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over. And I never got what I wanted. Sounds, sounds familiar, doesn't it? We always want another season, don't we? The kids would just grow up, then I'd be happy. If the kids were out of my house, then I'd be happy. If I could just have kids, then I'd be happy. If I could just get married, then I'd be happy. If my marriage would just be improved, then I'd be happy. There's always another season. And at the root of all of it is forgetfulness. We forget that God has ordained every single season and we grow discontent with our lives. Friends, here's how you don't waste your life. Live the life you've been given today. Live the life you've been given today instead of longing for the life you think you'll have someday but may never get. Discontentment is a thief. It's a burglar, a robber in your heart, which is lurking around in all seasons of your life to try and rob you of joy. Well, none of us are immune from this, rich or poor, young or old. No, God has made everything beautiful in its time. All seasons have a purpose. If you're a child, strive to honor the Lord by honoring your parents, by listening to them. Work hard to read your Bible, to learn how to study your Bible for yourself so you could see for yourself how much God loves you. If you're single, follow Paul's advice. Run hard in ministry. It's a blessing to be single, according to Paul. You can meet with lots of people for discipleship. You can read and study your Bible like crazy. Don't waste it. Enjoy the season. If you have young kids, enjoy the season. Play with your kids. Pray for your kids. If your kids are all grown up, be a loving friend and mentor to them. Use the wisdom and the knowledge and experience that God has given you to give it to them, to care for them. Now, all of it has a purpose. God is sovereign over our lives. Everything happens under his authority. Isn't that freeing? God isn't A watchmaker who makes the watch, winds it, and then disappears. He's the loving God who makes us and sustains us with a beautiful plan and a beautiful purpose according to what he has foreordained, and he oversees it until the end. There are hard times, but God makes them beautiful. The trouble is we don't see it all. Look at the end of verse 11. We don't know his plan. 
We don't know the inside of God's mind and what he's doing. There are dark tiles in every mosaic. There are black Lego pieces in every set. On their own, they're dark. But when they are put together with other pieces, they bring out the other pieces to life. Now, Joseph being sold into slavery was a, a dark piece. But God used that to rescue his people out of famine. Now, Moses, as a baby, was thrown into the Nile and picked up by the enemy's daughter. It's a dark piece. But God used that for Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. God is in control over the confusing seasons of life. Maybe you're in one of those today. Just so confusing. What is God doing? Well, one of my favorite stories of this is an account given by Corey Ten Boom. Now, Corey and her sister Betsy were Dutch Christians in a Nazi concentration camp in World War II. The camp was the worst of horror stories. People were sick, others were dying, many were murdered. But Betsy kept reminding her sister Corey, Corey, be thankful for everything. Be thankful to God for everything. And, and what it was that Corey hated the most, out of everything that happened in the concentration camp, Corey hated the fact that there were lice and fleas all over her bed. Anything she did, she couldn't get rid of those lice. Regardless of what she did, they bit at her every night as she tried to sleep. Well, one time the two sisters were, were gathered together and they were praying and they were thanking God for, for everything. And right in the middle of, of the prayer, Corey was praying and Betsy, her sister, interrupted her during the prayer and said, Hey, Corey, you're forgetting something. You're forgetting to thank God for the lice and the fleas. Now, Betsy really thought her sister was, was crazy, but she thanked God for those offensive little creatures that bugged her every night. Well, after a while, at the camp, they started a Bible study in their barracks, which was a big deal. There were catastrophic consequences for studying the Bible, but they felt like it was important to read the Bible together, and so they studied it. And it was God's grace that those guards never came in. They always wondered, why did the guards never enter into their sleeping quarters? Well, later, Corey learned why. It was because the guards were afraid of the lice. They were afraid of catching those lice and those fleas. Those torturous insects turned out to be the shield of God around Corey and Betsy Ten Boom all that time. A dark mosaic. A dark piece that God was using for good. The thing she hated was the very thing God was using to build his church there in the concentration camp. Friend, your physical pain, your anxiety, your depression, your persecution, your trials at work, your trials at home, your trials in life, God won't waste it. It's not an accident. He's in control over every single season of your life. We see this at the cross, don't we? I mean, every one of Jesus' followers felt like it was utter failure, that they had been defeated. There's Jesus, there's their leader, and he's up there on the cross being killed. They all walk home mourning that everything had been a failure. It looked bleak. The cross looked like a loss in that moment. Their leader was being crucified, dead for all to see, mocked by thousands. 
But then on that third day, on that third day, the tomb was empty. That stone had been rolled away. The angels had proclaimed that he had risen and that he appeared to a great multitude with the scars in his hands. But he was alive. He was alive and our sins had been forgiven. The sacrifice had worked. It had been complete. He had risen from the dead. But see, friends, at just the right time, Jesus was arrested and killed. It was no surprise to God the Father. It was God's plan coming to perfect fruition. Galatians 4, verse 4, The Savior was born when the fullness of time had come. Romans 5, verse 6, He died for our sins at just the right time. Now, rather than insisting that everything run on our schedule, we need to trust God's timetable for our lives. He knows better than we do. And he's in control in ways that we are not. Because our lives are more than just this life. Verse 11, again, God has set eternity in our hearts. All of us deep down know this is true. We know that God exists. We know this isn't the end of the story. We know that God made us for something more than this life. Romans 1 tells us so. It says what is known about God has been clearly seen by all of us. This is called common or general revelation. All of us see traces of God's handiwork everywhere we go. That's a grace to us. God has set eternity in our hearts. We know deep down this life isn't as good as it gets. You know you weren't created by accident. You know you weren't created by some big bang, objects crashing into each other to create life. Evolution from nothing to something. Now let me say this. I think it takes more faith to believe in a big bang or an evolution than it does to believe in a God who created us in his image. It's more rational to believe in a creator God. Why? Well, because God has put eternity into our hearts. We can see the intricacies of creation as we look around. We can see man and woman, these image bearers that we are, made in his image. And we see the wonder of one another. We know that we're not some cosmic accident, but are the divine design of a great designer. And we see that his plan, his design is always wise. Verse 11. Verse 12, we see that God's plan, though wise, is mysterious. We can't unlock the mystery of God's plan, and that's okay. In some strange way, we are comforted that we don't have all the answers. That there's a God bigger than us who holds the whole world in his hands. Verse 15 Everything happening now has been decreed in the past, and all that happens in the future is part of God's plan. What the preacher is saying, don't try and figure this out. Just enjoy life. Look back again to verse 13. Did you catch verse 13 as Chriselle was reading it earlier this morning? Listen to it again. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Now, wait a minute. There's something funny about this verse, isn't it? I mean, didn't the preacher tell us last week that everything is vanity? Right? Didn't he say that, that it's like a chasing after the wind? Working, eating, drinking, toiling. Do you remember that? 
But here it's a gift. Now remember too what I also said last week. Now the preacher and God is not against pleasure. Those double cheeseburgers with beef bacon and special sauce are a good thing. Biryani, bliss, Iranian kebab, shish, tawuk, and hummus, pancit, ugali, palau, a special night with friends, fellowship over games, a dinner date, sweet conversation, a prayer meeting. Last week I had the privilege of attending the Tuesday night Murdoch community group and we had sweet fellowship as we studied the word and prayed for one another. All these things are God's gift to man. Now the point the preacher's making again is that we don't get our security, we don't get our significance from those things alone. We don't strive after those things to fulfill our heart. What he's saying is you seek after God, seek after the giver of the gifts, and enjoy the gifts that he's given you. Oh friends, what he's saying is live life to the fullest. Rest in God's sovereignty. You don't know what tomorrow holds. Today, eat your mint chocolate chip ice cream and enjoy your friends. Be faithful to God today. When author and theologian John Murray was in kindergarten, he was about five years old, and he would always worry about things. His biggest worry, he would tell his mom sometimes at bedtime, was this. Mom, what if you or dad dies tomorrow? What would happen? And his mom answered him and said rather wisely, Son, your job is not to worry about tomorrow. Just do your job today and be faithful. And your job right now is to go to sleep. (laughs) Now, Murray lived the rest of his life with that in mind. What's my job today? How do I honor God today? I had a teacher once tell me that life is like skiing, snow skiing. If you've been snow skiing, you're at the top of this mountain, say it's a big mountain, and you look down at the bottom, and it looks quite far away. You're terrified. You wonder, how in the world can I make it from the top of the mountain all the way to the bottom? Well, my teacher said, you know how you make it to the bottom? Well, don't look down at the bottom. Just ski the snow in front of you. If you keep skiing the snow in front of you, eventually you'll make it to the bottom. Friend, be faithful today. Trust God today. Trust God one day at a time for the next 10,000 plus days, and one day you'll get there. Ski the snow in front of you. Time flies by. Seasons, they come and seasons, they go. Keep God's sovereignty in mind. He is in control over every minute of your lives. That's the first point. But number two. Second thing the preacher sees. There's little justice now, so keep eternity in mind. So we've just seen... That we are to keep God's sovereignty in mind as time flies by. A second thing is there's little justice now. As we look around the world, we see little justice. So keep eternity in mind. 
This world is a chaotic place. Chapter 3, verse 16, all the way through the end of chapter 4, we see that this world is broken. It's a place full of injustice. And the preacher lists a number of things. In verse 16, there's inequality. Sometimes bad guys win and good guys lose. I mean, wouldn't it be delightful if bad guys lost every time? I mean, it would be wonderful. It would be great if, if right after the driver behind you, he pulls up behind you, tailgating you, kind of right behind, flashing his lights and following you right close there on the highway. What if every time the driver behind you tailgates you and flashes their lights, that when they did that, all of their tires just exploded? And their car slowly went off the road. Wouldn't that be great? Or when a person cheats you in business, that the very next month they go bankrupt and have no money. Or whenever someone gets angry at you, their teeth would just fall out as they slept. Just one after another. It's not a dream. It's really happening. Justice. Now, none of us would want instant justice from God. I mean, it would have to happen to you too. When you're rude, you'd go blind. Or when you gossiped, your tongue would turn blue. None of us would want that. And we don't get it in this life. Injustices will continue. Until chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, death is the ultimate reality. We read in those verses that both humans and animals all have breath, and yet we all return to the dust. No one likes thinking about death. And we all deal with it. We all plan for it in different ways. There's a group of monks that actually together, they dig a grave, they dig a hole in the ground, and each day those monks... They go outside and they gather around that hole, that grave, to consider their mortality. And then when one of them dies, they will bury them in that grave. And then they'll dig another grave and leave that open and just continue that process. Others aren't so practical. They just laugh about it. One actor uh, proclaimed, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't think I want to be there when it happens. Others are anxious about dying. We worry about it. Well, death will come. And until then, difficult times will come. Bad guys will hurt us. Bad guys will sometimes look like they win. Chapter 4, verse 1. It'll feel at times that God is on leave and taking a holiday. That he's created an autoresponder to our prayers while on break. Well, how do we get through these tough moments when there's tragedy and it looks like God is silent? When we see the island of Barbuda, which was completely obliterated this past month, all inhabitants had to flee after one of the last hurricanes. And for the first time in 300 years for this Caribbean island, no one is currently living on the island. Or how about hundreds dead in Mexico from the earthquake this past week? Teachers and students still unaccounted for in the midst of the rubble. Or when a 34-year-old ministry leader dies of stomach cancer. It makes us agree with the preacher in chapter 4, verse 2. The dead, they're more fortunate than the rest of us. And even better, those who haven't even been born yet. Because this life, it's just full of evil. Now the author and apologist Nabil Qureshi did pass away last Saturday. The day after I mentioned him in the sermon. 
Friends, there is little justice now. So keep eternity in mind. Nabil kept eternity in mind. He got it. He once said this, Without Jesus, we approach life with the expectation of death. With Jesus, we approach death with the expectation of life. Eternity is coming. This is our great hope. This world is a miserable place for many people. It must be if the dead and the unborn are commended by the preacher. But, chapter 3, verse 17, God will judge eventually. There's a season coming that will never end. And until, until then, as one author suggests, we live life backwards. We wait on God who will make all wrong things right. We think about heaven. We think about eternity. We know that there will be a day when God will take all of our tears and he'll throw them in a bottle and toss that bottle out into the endless sea, never to be seen again. We know that there's a day coming where we will not see bad guys again. There's a day coming where there will be no hurricanes or floods, no typhoons or tornadoes, no earthquakes or earth-shattering terrorism. Cancer will be extinguished, depression done away with, chronic pain will be finished, death will die, it'll all be gone. And best of all, fellow believer, we will be all together. All of us with believers from now and from all times, from all places, and we'll be gathered together around the marriage supper of the Lamb. And there in the middle will be our great God, our God who saved us, our Savior Jesus, who died for us on the cross and then rose from the dead. Until then, friend, keep eternity in mind. Look to that day. Live today for that day. And don't forget it. And friend, if you're here and you don't yet know Jesus, we are so glad that you're here. Know that God has put eternity in your heart. Don't resist that call any longer. Listen to him. Come to him. Turn from your sin in repentance and in faith. He is your only hope. And fellow Christian, don't give in to the temptation to waste your life with endless and fruitless toil. The fuel that feeds the fire of our toil is finally mentioned in chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. And that's the third point this morning. Number three. It's another observation the preacher sees. Envy will kill us. So keep other people in mind. Envy will kill us. Keep other people in mind. Now I'll be honest, verse 4 has rocked my life this week as I've been meditating on these words the last several days. It has challenged me and it has convicted me. Why do we toil like we do? Why do we work like we do? Why do we chase after the wind in this life knowing heaven is coming? Chapter 4, verse 4. Then... I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Do you see what he's saying? Why do we work so hard? Is it because we want to honor God? Is it because we enjoy our work? Is it because we want to do great things? Well, the preacher seems to think, no. Why do we work hard? 
We work hard because of what the other guy has achieved. Now, at first, that sounds kind of crazy. But sadly, it's true. It's a mind-blowing fact that C.S. Lewis writes about in Mere Christianity when he addresses pride and envy. He says, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. Have you noticed that you'd be far more content with what you have if you didn't know what the other person has? That we're far more discontent, not because of what God has given us, but because of what we see other people have. How about when you visibly see a co-worker succeed at work? Sometimes it, it makes us feel worse about ourselves. But when someone fails, deep down we feel better about ourselves. Consider this saying, Any friend can share your sorrows and failures, but it takes a true friend to share your joys and successes. I mean, we see this all the way from youth, don't we? One of your children falls and scrapes his knee. Another child will be there really quick to give him a hug and to encourage him. But when that same child who fell gets a new Lego set and the other child doesn't, well, you've just set off World War III. This is why so many birthday parties go bad. Everyone is envious of the one with presents. Everyone is envious of the one who gets to blow out the candles. Now, we might chuckle at this, but we adults aren't any better, and we know it. We're far worse because we know better. We just don't always publicly cry when it happens to us. But our envy of others brings us to work even harder. We need to have more money. We need to be more successful. We need our career to mean something. We need a bigger home. We need more stuff. We need to feel more significant. Proverbs 14 says that this envy will rot our bones. That's some serious imagery. Have you ever felt it destroy your heart? I mean, envy and jealousy, that never makes you feel good. Doesn't it? It It's a great stressor. It makes you feel terrible. It's rotting away at your bones. Makes you anxious and drives you to work even harder. Well, what's the cure for envy? I think it's love. Envy is anti-love. 1 Corinthians 13 says love doesn't envy. Now, the antidote to envy is love and contentment. Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourself. Envy puts your own interests above others, but love and contentment puts others above your own. Now, to fight envy is to be proud of someone. 
Now, when you give in to envy, your life looks like verses 7 and 8 in chapter 4. The businessman or woman works their way to the top. They obsess over their wealth and their prestige. But when one gets the paycheck, rather than being content, you start thinking about the next paycheck and the next paycheck and the next one. He's like Ebenezer Scrooge of the Christmas story. A bitter old man who shows us that wealth and power won't make us happy. He works hard and comes to an empty house at the end of the day, counts his money, and then goes to sleep alone, day after day after day. Envy makes enemies out of other people. You make them competition to you. Love makes us friends. Love says, I don't have to work hard to get ahead of my neighbor. Love says, I'll let God be my personal public relations department. If God wants to give me notoriety or power or wealth or fame, then so be it. But I'm not going to work myself to death and stomp on people in the process. Verses 9 through 12 give us a better way. We weren't made to envy. We were made for community. We were made to spend money on others. We were made to spend our time on others. We weren't made to look on our own interests, but on others. Jesus shows this to us. He gave up his own rights and his own life. Oh, have friends. Be in community, not competition. Two is better than one. In verse 12, a threefold cord is better than two. We're better together. Oh, friend, are you loving your neighbor? Introverts, are you giving up your time and energy to love others? Extroverts, you love being with people. Is there a purpose to your friendships? Or do you just like it when people make you feel good? Do you think about the good of others? Do you drop things in your personal calendar to help other people? Are you in community or are you in competition? Well, there's a warning in the last verses of chapter 4. If you're in competition, this is how your life's going to end. And the preacher in these verses tell us a story of unparalleled achievement. A poor young man grows up to be a wise king. He's got a great multitude following him. But eventually, those achievements will be long forgotten. The preacher says, let some time pass and eventually, no one's going to remember you. The younger guy, the younger gal will take your place. Friends, instead of pursuing your own fame, the way of the cross is to pursue the fame of God. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, show us this. Show us the way to do this is by fearing God. We don't fear other people and live for their approval and envy them. We live by fearing God. Now, chapter 4 was all about envy and all about advancement and wealth. Why is chapter 5 after chapter 4? Well, it's because here's the answer. The unwasted life fears God. Here's another, another answer, another key to life from the preacher. We live with an innate sense of fearing the God who made us. To fear God means we give God all the honor. We give God all the reverence due Him. You care more about what He thinks than you do the person next door. It means you trust Him in all seasons of your life. It means you don't overwork. It means you seek to make His name great. It means we live for Him. That's really our only choice. There's two ways we can live. One way is to worship this world. The other way is to worship this God. 
And so, Redeemer Church, how are you going to respond to the seasons of your life? The good times, the bad times. Are you listening to God? Are you trusting Him? Are you fearing Him? Are you speaking to Him? And if you spend more time in chapter 5 later today, you see that this is really important that we would fear God. It speaks of vows in those verses. In the Bible, we're never commanded to make a vow. But when we say yes, let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Fear God. Fear what He thinks of you. Seek to please Him in your life. In verse 7, final verse of our passage, we stand in awe of this God. That's the key. We fear Him more than anything. It's another answer to the unwasted life. Fear God, nothing else. Fear the God in heaven. Live for Him. And remember that God has made everything beautiful in its time. And it's all His time. Well, let's pray together and then we'll take communion. Oh, Father, help us to trust you in all seasons of our lives. Whether it be a sunny day or a cloudy day in our hearts, would we look to you as the divine designer who has everything in his hands? Oh, would we fear you and look to you as the one who sustains our lives? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.